So we're picking up where we left off um, last week in our studies of this, the biblical ethics surrounding the ordinance of labor. And you'll remember that last week we defined labor as any activity that reduces the disorder that is natural in the fallen world around us. One conversation, really a helpful conversation I had last week uh, after the lesson suggested that perhaps a more fundamental definition would be any activity uh, that where we are fully, more fully discovering the glory of God. I mean, that is backing up and, and really going to the root of our labor. And I'm not going to go into it right now, but I appreciate that definition. And I do believe that it fits uh, labor in both the pre-fall and the post-fall world. I also believe that my original definition uh, fits underneath that one, and it helps us to very practically understand or think about our labor in this fallen world. It's much more of a horizontal perspective. So then we went on to discuss that mankind was created to work and that our labor is a gift of God as well as being for Christians a fruit or good result of our salvation. <coughs> we then discussed, uh, we, we talked about a scriptural principle or a couple of scriptural principles that would help us in answering the question, what do we do when we grow up? What are we going to do for our work for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. The first of these scriptural principles was to understand how God had gifted us uh, to labor, each one of us individually. And then the second is to be careful not to compare our gifting and our choice of the, from the Bible, our quiet labor with others. We don't want to compare ourselves to what others are gifted to do because that really will only cause us to be or can cause us to be either envious or bitter because we didn't get the gift that someone else got. We don't want to be discontent. We want to be content. And so now, now I just want to say a word under this heading that I didn't say last week. I want to talk about paid versus unpaid labor because that's very relevant for us. Many of us will labor in this world for pay. Many of us will labor without being paid. And really these principles apply across the board. But I talked about how in my 32 year career and seven years and counting since leaving that work, how what lessons I learned and, and what it taught me about my purpose, its value, and its ultimate end from Ecclesiastes 12, 13, which is really, in short, it's to fear God and keep his commandments, to fear God and obey him. And this conclusion is obviously broader than just paid labor. It applies to all labor. And God, in his kindness, and I think this is a kindness, God has given us in his word some more specific commands, particularly to women in Titus 2, 4, and 5, where Paul's instructing Titus what the older women should be teaching the younger women. 
he says in Titus 2, 4, and 5, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. If God is calling you to a primary sphere of what I'll call domestic labors, as he frequently does with young married women, then we, then we can rejoice that you can know from his word that you are keeping his commandments if you are content fulfilling domestic labors that he's gifted you for and gifted to you. Many times, as our boys were growing up, I would have a conversation similar to this with my wife because I would say, I envy you because you have chapter and verse that we can go to that says God, is, God wants you to do this and he is blessing you in it. I don't have that. Nothing in God's word told me, go and get trained as a chemical engineer and work for 32 years for some company. But you have an exact chapter and verse you can go to. That's a blessing. There's great peace that comes with that, knowing that you are, as we all have heard and even like to say, we are in God's will. You can look straight in his word and see if you're in God's will, if you're called to that sphere of labor. And if you're a young person in your parents' home, you can know that you're keeping his commandments when you obey your parents and do the chore they've asked of you. You can know that because it's in his word to honor your parents. It's in his word to obey them. You typically won't get money for it, though you may. But you can rejoice to know that, if you, that you are in God's will. Most men in the work world have to deal with a bit more uncertainty than that. But with discernment, we can all know that we are serving God with our quiet labor, that is our anonymous, our unnoticed labor by the vast majority of the rest of the population of the world, our quiet labor. And that leads to great contentment with it. So now we're gonna move on and, and cover, cover, ha. Huh. We're gonna make some comments on how do I do what God has gifted me to do? How should I go about my work? The answer to this question is at once easily determined from our Bibles and very difficult to keep in front of us in practice day by day due to, due to the relentless assault of today's cultural messages. So how are we to do what we do? And my short answer, the Bible's short answer is, we must work for the Lord and not for men, including ourselves. So Colossians 3, 23 and 24. This is a pair of verses that I had posted on a piece of paper, sat back behind my computer monitor, my virtually my entire career in the workplace. I moved it with me every time I changed offices. And it was on an old piece of printer paper that came out with the little holes on the sides because the printer, like a little tractor, moved it out. It was on that paper until I retired. 
And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You see, when we do our work for the Lord, that is motivated by the fact that we are serving him primarily, we are promised the reward of the inheritance. That's straight from the verse. And that transcends any money we might receive. It doesn't replace the money we might receive. We do, in practice, work for money. But we aren't motivated by it. We shouldn't be primarily motivated by it. Because if we're doing what we do motivated by the Lord, by our service to him, it makes it matter less if any other human being openly recognizes in a way that we appreciate the value of our work. It's nice when they do, but it makes it less important that they do because we're not doing it primarily for that. We're doing it primarily to serve our Lord. If we're doing what we do for the Lord, it makes it easier to deal with a harsh or a rude or a self-focused boss or what the, the Bible would call master, but it's the, it's the one in authority over us, one who commands rudely or does not give due credit for what we've done. It also makes us more productive for the long term. It's sustainable. That's a popular word today. It sustains our motivation if we're serving the Lord and not men because if we make our motivation the, the acclaim, recognition of others or of ourselves even, that motive is really based on circumstances. And if we're serving the Lord, our motive is not based on circumstances because the Lord doesn't change. <coughs> These ideas are supported in Ephesians 6, 5 through 7, and in 1 Peter 2, 18 and 21, among others. I just didn't want to take the time to go through all of the, all the text today because I want to get through uh, the, past, the, uh, the, the notes that I want to uh, cover today. So in the Old Testament, after the Exodus, God specified the creation of the tabernacle, its furniture, and the garments of the priesthood. He also gave gifts to certain men to take the lead in creating all the beautiful weavings and the ornate sculptures that would adorn his house. Think about how many there were who had to work to supply the materials for these things to be built and woven. It was, it was certainly many times more than the number of those gifted to create just the end product. Right, we don't know any of their names. We know Bezalel, he was a creator of the end product, but we don't know the hundreds of people who wove or even spun yarn, the hundreds of people who mined ore or refined it to gold. We don't know any of their names. They were working quietly. Was spinning the thread less important than creating the fabrics? Was mining and refining of gold less important than fashioning it into furniture? Obviously, my answer is no. It wasn't more important or less important. 
It's apparent that there were many more doing these unnoticed, quiet tasks than there were those doing the finished work. And that's most of us. By necessity, most of us are going to be working at things that aren't noticed by the rest of the world, that won't be recorded in a book, much less the Bible, for someone to read about in future generations. And that has to be okay. If it's not okay, where's our motivation going to be? Solomon wrote hundreds of years after this work was done that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. It's a similar command to that found in the New Testament. But the New Testament commands, some of which we've looked at, they add the motivation for, for doing it, the why. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Why? Because you're working for the Lord. You're serving the Lord who has redeemed your soul who has given you the greatest gift that could ever have been given. And you're just, you're just serving him. It's for the Lord that you work, not for men. Now, I'm not saying that you don't work immediately for men, that your nearest supervisor is not a man or a woman. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if your motivation is rooted in serving that man or that woman, it's not going to last. It's going to be variable and your work is going to suffer. We as believers should be known, we should be known, we should be marked out for our diligent and thorough work, not for putting in the minimum effort that we know would be deemed acceptable. We shouldn't think in those categories. We shouldn't think, how little can I do to get by? And I understand that, I've probably even thought that at times because I'm a human being. I'm a fallen man. But that doesn't make it right. We should be known for being diligent and having our motivation come from something beyond the human realm. We must be motivated by our love for him and not primarily by our love for ourselves that would be advancement, promotion. I want a promotion, so I'm gonna, I'll work pretty hard right now so I can get it. Or recognition, I wanna be lifted up above my peers so that people know that I'm working really smart and hard. And that feels good to me. Or for our fear of, or, or a desire to be thought well of by our bosses or others. So admir we wanna be admired. And that motivates us. That's a bad motivation, too. Many of these things are fruits. They're results of serving the Lord. But that mustn't be confused with an objective, with something that drives us, with the motive we're aiming for. Because if these things are motives to us, we're not going to work uh, faithfully. We're not going to work consistently. We're not going to work uh, year by year day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. We're not going to maintain our motivation. Only a motivation that is rooted in serving the Lord is sustainable. And if we work that way, that is, 
as if for the Lord, as it says in Colossians. If we work that way, we are likely to accumulate, and now I'm talking about material resources, money and others, we're likely to accumulate more than we need for ourselves and our needs because that's the way the world works. So I want to move on now to talk about how do we deal, how do we think about and deal with the fruit of our labors, what we get paid, either directly with money or with something else. How do we deal with that fruit? And I want to start first by saying, what should we expect as the fruit of diligent labor done for the Lord? And we can, we can answer that question by reading a few verses from what I've called the book of truisms. What is the book of truisms? Proverbs. Right. Proverbs are not promises that are, that are rock solid, always, always perfectly true. Proverbs are truisms. They're general. This is generally how the world works. This is what you should expect to see in God's world, especially if you are obeying God and living in it. You should expect this. That's not the same as a promise. I'm not going to say any more about that. I could, but I, won't, I don't want to. So let's read. I'm going to read five Proverbs. Just get the gist of it. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10.4. Proverbs 14.23. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads to po- only to poverty. Proverbs 13.11. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished. But he who gathers by labor will increase. Proverbs 22.4. By humility and the fear of the Lord, a good objective, fear of the Lord, are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 23.5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? A poor objective, setting your eyes on something that's not. For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. That one's a little more subtle, right? But it says, if you're going to make riches your objective, you're going to be sad. Because those riches are not going to stick around. So, diligent labor with your heart fixed upon the right objective normally will lead to accumulation of resources, to riches. On the other hand, laziness or a self-focused objective normally will lead to lack or want. That's just the way the world works that God has designed. And we don't need to apologize for it if we work diligently and accumulate riches. I'm using the word riches here, and I mean that as generally as you can possibly understand it. I'm not talking about necessarily about money, but it can include money. I'm talking about all of the resources that we accumulate over our lives and we can use to help others, to serve others and to serve our families. We have to come to terms with the fact that if we are diligent in our work with the right goal in mind, we will often be rewarded with gain. 
That's what the Proverbs say. We're going to be. I, I've talked in raising my sons, I've told all of them, you don't have to do anything exceptional in the workplace. You have to do, you have to work the way I've taught you to work. And you're going to stand out because the world doesn't think that way. The world thinks in terms of transient motivations. And that makes their, the quality of their labor transient. And that's going to make you stand out. So how much will you, uh, will you gain? How much material goods will you get? I know you're all thinking that. Just tell me how much. It's going to vary, right? Because that, that leads to our second point under this heading of how we deal with the fruit of our labor. Our righteous gain will vary depending on our degree of giftedness and diligence. Right? So we're all variously gifted and gifted at different levels. And we, ha we all have some level of diligence and, honestly, diligence at different levels. That's because we're all fallen creatures. That's simply a logical conclusion if you read the truisms that we talked about and many others. We had discussed last week that what we labor at will depend on how the Lord has gifted us. And we must admit that we see all degrees and types of giftedness in the body of Christ. Just in this body, just in this bo local body here, we see all degrees and types of giftedness. Now, if we'll all learn to keep our heads down in living the quiet life God has given us, working with our hands, at what he's given us to do, that's, I'm focusing on each one of us, so each one of you need to focus on you. Not comparing what we do or how much we make with others in an envious way, we will achieve what the Lord intends for us. And the body of Christ will work better because all the parts will be doing what they were designed to do, what they were gifted to do. Whether or not what the Lord intends for us is one talent or five talents or ten talents or more or less, it really isn't our concern. We must seek to optimize our productivity for the kingdom and take satisfaction in that not in comparing our productivity to someone else's productivity and becoming envious or becoming bitter because the Lord didn't gift us to make as much as they make. We have to take satisfaction in what the Lord's gifted us to do and do it with all of our might. If we'll do that, we will have what we need to live and very likely some, some more to share because that's how the Lord designed it. So third, here's what I want us to understand. The Bible does not frown upon riches. You're not going to be able to quote me chapter and verse that says riches are evil. Can't do it. It gives us cautions about riches, like Jesus in Mark 10, 10, 23, and 25 he said, therefore, or it's, he said, it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples said, what? 
And he said, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, whoa. <coughs> and he said, he said, but with God, all things are possible. If we will focus our attention in the right place, God will use our riches for much good. Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, have a lot to teach here, and we aren't going to teach through this whole thing. But I want to just read the passage. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire, or have an objective, to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men with destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul's arguing here that it is not riches that are the problem, it is misplaced priorities that are the problem. He's encouraging contentment with what the Lord provides in verses 6 through 8. Be content with what the Lord has given you. Have you do you understand what, how God has gifted you to work? And are you seeking to do that with all of your might for him? Be content with, with what you are provided with. Don't look to the right or the left and see what someone else is getting or not getting and be either proud or, or envious. He's saying, make our objective to be content with what the Lord provides for us. And he's warning us against making material gain our objective in verses 9 and 10. And I'm not going to go back and read those because I don't want to take the time. Desire to be rich and the love of money are life objectives that are contrary to faith in Christ. Desire to be rich is contrary. Accumulating riches is not. It depends, it all depends on our objective. What's driving us? What I'm saying, along with Paul, is that it is contentment that we should set our sights on as that point on the horizon we are aiming at. So I'm early in my life, I'm starting my career. I should not have necessarily, no, not necessarily. I should not have an objective of making a certain amount of money by a certain uh, time, period. My objective, Paul is saying, is I should be aiming at, I want to be content with what the Lord is providing for me graciously through this work he's gifted me to do. That's my, if I will keep that long-term objective point on the horizon in front of me and aim at it, then everything that happens in the ensuing years and decades will be lined up with it. And if I don't have that as my objective, if I have something else or nothing at all, then I'll drift. And, and we all know we are all capable of drifting without having something worthy even unworthy, something to aim at. If we will do that, we may well 
accumulate material gain as a result. But if we make that result, that material gain, riches, stuff, if we make that our objective, we will, as Paul says in the verse, in verse 10, pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. That's what's going to happen. If we have the wrong objective, if we are aimed, aiming at piling up stuff and showing that the one who has the most stuff at the end of his life wins, we're going to pierce ourselves through with sorrows. As Murray says, how could it be otherwise? The lust for wealth is covetousness, and covetousness is idolatry. So to boil it down or to, to strip away all the veneer, what we're doing is we're making covetousness, we're making riches an idol. That's our objective. We're going to seek this. We're going to worship at the, at the altar of riches. And that's going to pierce us through with many sorrows. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. Paul caps off his thinking in verses 17 through 19. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in, make their objective, uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. He is reiterating his exhortation that if we keep the right objective, verse 17, we will bear the righteous fruits of it. Verses 18 through the first half of 19, those are the fruits. Rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, those are the fruits of having the right objective. And we will show that we are fit for eternal life. That's the end of verse 19. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Note, it is not say, he's not saying that that way they will earn eternal life. That is not what he is saying. He's saying they will demonstrate their fitness for it. Because faith without works is dead, as James says. And Paul's taking, he's saying the same thing here. He's saying, if you are a child of God, you are going to demonstrate your fitness for it by showing the fruits of having the right objective in your labor. And that objective is to serve the Lord. Okay, fourth, and this is kind of related to the third, so I'm really just pounding the nail again. It is not gain but unrighteous gain that the Bible condemns. It, it does condemn the misuse of riches or the idolatry of riches, making riches your God or your objective. In chapter 5 of his letter, James writes on this helpfully. Consider a few excerpts from James 5, 1 through 6. First, James condemns the unrighteous rich in verses 1 through 3, saying, Weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. You have pierced yourself through with many sorrows. Then in verses 4 to 6, he says, he tells them of their corruptions. He, he lists some of them. Things like not paying those who have worked for them, not dealing faithfully with those who have contracted with you for labor. 
Things like living in luxury while ignoring the needs of, of those all around them. Things like condemning the just, doing, doing injustice. But notice that in building on that harsh but needed assertion of the truth that James cites Job in, uh, in James 5.11. He says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Who, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. James cites Job as an example of patient endurance, noting the end intended by the Lord. And we know, because we have the book of Job in our Bibles, we know that the end intended by the Lord for Job was blessing, abundant blessing, with more riches than he had before his trial began. So we can't conclude that riches are evil in themselves. Just the opposite. They can be, in Job's case and in many, many of our cases, I pray, they can be a mark of righteous living, a blessing from God because we are seeking to serve him first in our labor. And then we're taking the result of, serving, of seeking to serve him and accumulating it for our good and for the good of many around us. Then fifth, distribution of resources is not, not to be even across all of us, even according to the Bible's ethic. Hmm. This may be obvious based on what we've just been discussing, but I thought it was worth noting separately because it can rub some people the wrong way. It doesn't seem right. Murray says it this way, the economic structure presupposed in the teaching of the New Testament as well as of the old is one in terms of the distinction, the distinction, the differentiation between rich and poor. These are rich, I'm referring to God's children here. I mean, it, it, Murray's referring to the world, but this refers to God's children as well. In the church, in the church universal, there are going to be rich people and there are going to be poor people, and that's exactly how God intended it. And then he goes on, and here I'm going to paraphrase what he says, because his, his writing can get kind of thick, and it's, you have to parse it apart. So I've, I've paraphrased this, but it's still somewhat of a quote. This distinction is recognized not merely as a providential fact that would or should be eliminated, but as a distinction which fits the designly instituted order of society. God has instituted our society this way. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, which we just considered, does not condemn the rich for being rich, but tells them how the Spirit would prompt them to behave. 
that it is to be rich in good works. Paul is concerned not that the rich become poor to enter the kingdom, but that they prove the spirits indwelling by how they handle the riches with which they've been blessed. It has much more to do with their hearts and how that manifests in their behavior than it does with the size of their bank accounts. Again, quoting Murray, equality is not a fact of God's providence and it is not a rule to be practiced in, or, in the order he has instituted. In other words, I'll say with my tongue, and most, mostly in my cheek, God is not a communist. He, does not, he doesn't believe that all resources should be distributed evenly amongst the people. I would say and make comment on the fact that he's also not, as some of us might define, a capitalist. But I don't want to go there. He doesn't have an economic system. He has instituted our society to make it be the way it, it is, that we see it. And he's given us hearts by his spirit to manifest his spirit's presence with the way we act toward one another in sharing and in receiving, whatever the case may be. Whatever material gain we enjoy as a result of our diligent, God-honoring labor is not evil. It is a token of God's blessing of us and is to be used to build his kingdom. Now I want to deal very briefly with a couple of principles for dealing with those in authority over us in labor. And I'll just, much of the remainder of this chapter is given over to the consideration of the relationship between the New Testament principles being communicated and the institution that we call slavery and the Bible called slavery. This obviously was and remains something of a hot button issue even today. And I'm not going to cover this detailed argument. This is more than half of the chapter on labor. And it's, it's, it's worth reading and considering. I found it interesting, but I didn't think it was very relevant to us. There were a couple of principles I wanted us to hear, though, and I'm really just almost going to state the principles, and that's it, because we have three minutes. First, this is the first principle, justice and equity must mark the relations between employer and employee. And that goes both ways. All right? Colossians 3.22 says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. That's how, that's how we're to work. The next verse goes on to say, work as if for the Lord. That's how we're to work. That's how we're to treat our employers. We're to give them everything we've got because we're not working directly for them when it comes down to it. We're working for the Lord. Amen. The verse after 323, Colossians 4.1, says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he's saying fear the Lord and be just, be fair with your employees. When we're in authority... We have to give what is just and fair to those laboring over us. 
Jim, do you have a question? In what context? Like thought life? I think I think it does include thought life, but it doesn't include our opinions about things, our conclusions about it. I think what it includes is our attitude toward our employer. When he says obey in all things, he doesn't mean just with eye service. He means from the heart. But he doesn't mean that we have to think a certain way because our boss <laughs> thinks that way. I, I can't take time for more right now, but I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. Okay. Um... So that's the one principle, justice and equity. We gotta be just and fair with people who we're working for and who are working for us. That's obvious. The law of, the, the, the royal law is to love one another and that's part of loving one another, both directions. The second biblical doctrine I want to point out from this whole long section is that the abuse of a biblical doctrine does not invalidate that doctrine. The Bible has been used to justify all sorts of treatment of image bearers that are clearly wrong and dehumanizing. That is true. But it's also been used, though perhaps a bit more subtly, to justify a kind of egalitarian attitude toward labor that is clearly not biblical. Just because a doctrine has been corrupted by men, it's not invalid. It's still in the Bible. It's still a doctrine. Our, pro, our, our, t our task is to seek to understand it. I could name several doctrines that have been horribly corrupted by men, and they're still valid. One which I taught a long time on was sex and marriage. Horribly corrupted by men. It doesn't make the doctrine invalid. Wives submitting to their husbands, horribly <coughs> corrupted by men, but it's still valid. Alcohol use, horribly corrupted by men, still a valid doctrine. We must protect what the Bible teaches us about submission to those in authority over us and about our treatment of those who we are in authority over. <coughs> I'm going to stop there. So let's seek to honor God with our diligence and our work, as well as our wise and white righteous use of the fruits he grants us as a result of that work. So let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you that you have given to us your word and you have given to us such clarity in it and sufficient detail in it that we can discern the way that we should work in this world and and who we should be working for and we pray father that you would work in each one of our hearts and cause us to more and more day by day moment by moment to be working consciously for you even as we serve others we pray it in christ's name amen, amen.